0: section 39 of the heroines of history this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by matthew reese the heroines of history by john s jenkins madame roland part 2 at 15 manon was graceful and pleasing Her face was attractive from its varying expression, frank, lively, and tender, often lofty and serious. The irregularity of her features was atoned for by her clear, fresh complexion, and the brilliancy of her hazel eyes. Modest and reserved, an inferior person would scarcely have suspected her strong talents. But when she came in contact with cultivated minds, she was transformed from a timid blushing maiden to a brilliant, self-possessed woman with a soul that beamed through every feature, giving animation and indisputable beauty to a face that otherwise would have been plain. Thinking to amuse her, Madame Philippon decided upon a trip to Versailles accompanied by Mademoiselle Danache and an uncle, an amiable young clergyman as an escort. They occupied apartments in the palace, which happened to be vacated by one of the Dauphiness women, and amused themselves with being spectators of the royal public and private dinners, and witnessing some of the splendors of palace life. Mademoiselle Danache, by her forward airs and noisy thrusting of her pedigree in the face of every one who opposed her passage, drew attention upon the little party, wherever they went, much to Manon's mortification. She looked thoughtfully upon the gaily dressed crowds about her, despised the fawning courtiers, and gazed with indignation upon the grand fetes, the brilliant equipages, and the luxuriant apartments of the palace contrasting them with the squalid homes and the pale emaciated crowds that went forth in daily labor, and from whom was wrenched half their scanty pittance, to support this splendor. Neither could her high spirit brook the notice of menials and the slights of court sycophants, whom she felt to be immeasurably beneath her. Instead of being amused with the daily show, she wandered away to the gardens to forget her disgust, in admiration of the flowers and the statues that graced them. Yet even there was tormented with thoughts of despotism and oppression, and sighed that she had not been born a Grecian maiden. Her mother, observing Manon's abstraction, asked how she enjoyed the visit. "'I shall be glad when it is ended,' was her characteristic reply, "'else in a few more days I shall so detest all the persons I see that I shall not know what to do with my hatred.' "'Why, what harm have these persons done you?' said Madame Philippon. They make me feel injustice, and look upon absurdity," replied the young sage. She was happy to be buried again in the retirement of her own home. Sophia Canet, her friend of the convent, having arrived at Paris with her brother, drew Manon more into society, and enabled her to meet people of rank, whose ignorance and supercilious airs she often had occasion to despise, and also gave her friends among authors and people of distinguished talent. She had attained an age and attractiveness that could not escape attention, and thenceforth Manon had numberless suitors who, according to the customs of France, were first obliged to apply to her parents, an embarrassing ceremony that was most frequently performed by letter-writing. In consequence, suitors were often dismissed by her father whom she had never seen. She was satisfied to judge of them by the tone of the application, and concurred in the dismission of one tradesman after another, often writing the replies herself which were carefully copied and sent by her father. When a wealthy jeweler appeared, Philippon was caught by the glitter of his occupation and his promising prospects of accumulating a large fortune. He urged upon Manon the expediency of accepting this suitor, but she was dissatisfied with his attainments, and assured her parents she could only be happy with one whom she could look upon as her equal or superior. This refusal occasioned the beginning of the estrangement between herself and father, which was never reconciled. Upon the appearance of a young physician, her parents thought the aspiring Manon would not hesitate to accept one of a profession that involved some degree of learning. Her mother, whose declining health made her anxious to see her daughter happily provided with a home, concerted with the young doctor to win Manon's affections. A first interview was carefully arranged. Madame Philippon conducted her daughter, as if unpremeditated, to the house of a friend, where the enamored suitor happened in by chance, of course. The profuse compliments of the inexperienced physician and the sly hints and meaning smiles of the ladies who accompanied him soon betrayed the whole plan to the penetrating Manon, and caused her to look with infinite contempt upon the silly artifices of her admirer. She consented, however, to her mother's urgent entreaties to receive his visits and decide more leisurely, but a farther acquaintance betrayed his superficial acquirements. And the girl, whose intellect was to be won, instead of her heart, gave him as decided a refusal as those who had gone before. In vain her father raged and stormed, and even the tender, sad pleadings of her invalid mother could not change her determination. "'Do not reject a husband,' said her mother. "'Who, it is true, does not possess the refinement you desire, but who will love you and with whom you can be happy.' "'As happy as you have been?' exclaimed Manon in her excitement, referring to the utter disunion of spirit between her father and mother. Madame Philippon's face was pale with painful emotion, and she never urged the subject again. Not long after, Manon returned hastily from a visit, filled with presentiments of evil, and found her mother suddenly ill and unable to speak. A priest was summoned to perform the last rites, and Manon, sobbing violently, stood by the deathbed holding a taper. Her mother smiled upon her and smoothed her cheek affectionately, till, overcome with the intensity of her grief, she fell senseless to the floor the light was extinguished, and when she again recovered, her mother was no more. The violence of her unchecked sorrow occasioned an illness from which her recovery was long doubtful. An excursion and soothing visit to her aunt Angelica somewhat restored her cheerfulness, but her home was no longer what it had been. Her father was rapidly pursuing a career of dissipation, to which his infidel principles gave loose reins, his business neglected, his little fortune rapidly vanishing, ensnaring in the toils of one not endeared by sacred ties, and whom he installed the quiet household. All contributed to repel his daughter's affection. She endeavored to forget her grief and her melancholy in her retired chamber, where nearly all her time was passed, absorbed in books and writing manuscripts which never met any eyes but her own. While thus solitary and desponding, a letter from her early friend Sophia announced a visitor of whom she had often heard. Roland de la Platière belonged to an opulent family of Amiens, and held the important office of inspector of manufactures. During his leisure he had written several treatises on political economy that had gained him some celebrity in the world. He was fond of study, and was something of a philosopher. In his frequent visits to the house of M. Canet, he had seen Manon's portrait, and often listened to Sophia's eulogies upon her accomplished friend, and had read her letters. His interest was excited in the enthusiastic and talented girl, and he entreated a letter of introduction, that he might be enabled to see her during his occasional trips to Paris. He accordingly presented himself at the first opportunity. Manon was prepared to judge of him by the sketch justly drawn by Sophia. "'You will receive this letter,' wrote her friend, "'by the hand of the philosopher of whom I have so often written you. Monsieur Roland is an enlightened man, of antique manners, without reproach, except for his passion for the ancients, his contempt for the moderns, and his too high estimation of himself. Manon found herself in the presence of one who she describes as tall, slender, and well-formed, but negligent in his carriage, and with that stiffness which is often contracted by study. Yet his manners were simple and easy, and without possessing the fashionable graces he combined the politeness of a well-bred man with the gravity of a philosopher. He was thin, with a complexion much tanned, his broad intellectual brow covered with but a few hairs added to the imposing attractiveness of regular features when listening his countenance expressed deep thoughtfulness and often sadness but once interested and animated in conversation his face was lighted with lively and winning smiles his voice was masculine his language monotonous and harsh but the sentiments he expressed so perfectly accorded with manon's views that she felt herself attracted by a sympathy as new as it was delightful Though his severe and practical mind admitted none of the beautiful dreams of the visionary world that added so much to Manon's happiness, there was yet that sameness of high ambition to be the benefactor of the human race, a conscious superiority over those whose rank gave them higher places, and a contempt for the frivolous pursuits of life, that perfectly harmonized their minds, though the heart of neither was touched. Manon regarded him as a superior being, an oracle, to whom she was willing to submit her judgment while he, flattered by the succumbing of her brilliant mind to his, regarded her with placid and paternal admiration. Upon M. Roland's departure from Paris, he left with his new friend voluminous manuscripts, containing a journal of recent travels in Germany, with sage reflections that rendered them doubly interesting to Manon. In their perusal, she became initiated in his thoughts and feelings to a far greater extent than conversation could ever have afforded her. Eighteen months elapsed before they met again. In the meantime Roland travelled through Italy, Switzerland, Sicily, and Malta, writing copious notes and forwarding them at regular intervals to Manon, who studied them with an avidity and interest that prepared her to hail his return with joy and veneration nearly allied to worship. Yet there was not a spark of love growing in her bosom, it was only her intellect that singled him out from the rest of the world. Several years passed in friendly correspondence, or interviews, during which they discussed political reforms, philosophy and science, and various literary projects, with a frankness, confidence, and pleasure that, before they were aware of it, each became necessary to the other's happiness. Monsieur Roland, at length, declared his attachment. Manon frankly acknowledged that she esteemed him more highly than any one she ever met. Yet her circumstances were so humble. Her father's errors would be a source of disgrace and mortification." and the well-known pride of the Roland family, who might feel dishonored by the alliance, were reasons for which her proud spirit shrank from a union otherwise unobjectionable. Monsieur Roland would not yield to these representations, and finally elicited her consent. From that moment the reliance, trust, and affection she had not known since her mother's death again nestled in her heart, and she was happy. Monsieur Roland returned to Amiens, and then addressed a letter to her father to obtain his consent to their marriage. M. Philippon replied in an insulting tone, and bluntly refused him. Manon, surprised and grieved, immediately wrote to her revered friend, and besought him to think no more of the affair, and not to expose himself to farther affronts by new solicitations. At the same time she assured her father she would marry no one else, secured a small remnant of her mother's fortune, and retired to the same convent where a year of her childhood had passed. In a narrow little room, close under the roof where the snow lay piled up, or the rain pattered dismally, without a companion, obliged to live with the strictest frugality, with no friendly voice to dispel the settled silence. Here Manon lived, enjoying a peaceful, quiet happiness in the midst of literary labours that no mere seeker of pleasure ever found in the delirious whirl of gaiety, or in luxurious idleness. The comfortless surroundings of uncurtained windows, bare floor, dim light, and scanty fire, could not depress her spirit but rather lent new and stronger wings to an imagination that continually roamed to the ends of the earth or far back into bygone ages, and brought therefrom abundant lessons to revolve. Disciplined by the particular circumstances of her life, and accustomed to live within herself, she was least alone when alone. She daily prepared her own frugal food, never went out except on the occasion of a weekly visit to her father's house to mend his linen and to have a care for his interests and received no visitors beside one of the sisters in the convent, who was limited to an hour in the evening. Who would have dreamed, in passing the quiet convent, that by the light shining dimly from the high window under the eaves sat a solitary maiden, unconsciously pruning her intellect for a bold patriotic appeal that was to shake the throne of France, unknowingly preparing herself to sway the deliberations of statesmen, and destined to tread in stately and conscious worth the halls of a palace? She lost no time in useless repinings, but applied herself vigorously and diligently to the cultivation of such talents as God had committed to her, without questioning the future, dark and gloomy enough to her lonely eyes. It was unfortunate that she had no guide to lead her out of the mazes in which she had lost her way, after rejecting the Catholic creed, as hollow and heartless, with the outward forms but not the essence of spirituality. Yet she dared reveal her doubts to no one and still preserved outward conformity to her mother's belief. Here M. Roland again visited her, at the expiration of five or six months. He presented himself at the convent one day, and beheld Manon's pale face behind the grating, which, with the sweet sound of her voice, revived the affection that had nearly died out when he ceased to think of her as his intended bride. Touched by her lonely condition, and her faithfulness to him, he urgently renewed his suit. Manon hesitated. She no longer cherished the romantic love with which she regarded him at their last parting, and her pride and vanity were wounded that he had endured a refusal he knew to be against her inclination with such unlover like apathy. Farther consideration, however, suggested the compliment his deliberate decision paid her, and the sacrifice of family considerations his renewed offer implied. Manon no longer deliberated, she resolutely placed her hand in his, and though more intellect than heart went with it, M Roland was satisfied and happy. Their marriage occurred in seventeen eighty. Manon still youthful at twenty-five, was at length wedded to an asture, self-confident, overbearing man, twenty years her senior. The first year was spent in Paris, entirely occupied in the preparation of a work on the arts in which Madame Roland untiringly assisted her husband. Her only recreation was attending a course of lectures on natural history and botany. She secluded herself from her friends not from her own choice, but because her imperious husband demanded it. He wished to absorb her attention and affection entirely in himself. The succeeding four years were passed at Amiens, occupied, as before, in literary pursuits, to which Madame Roland lent her own pen with a brilliancy of style that gave an additional reputation to Roland's works. The birth of a daughter divided her cares and pursuits, but she had become so indispensable to her husband that, for the sake of her grateful presence, he was quite ready to submit to the mischievous play of little fingers among his books and papers. The sunny face of Eudora, peeping out from her long flaxen ringlets, now and then laughingly thrust between her father's face and his endless manuscripts, did much towards softening his habitual sternness. Madame Roland, too, centered in this sweet child the affections that were but rudely and selfishly cherished by her exacting husband. It was in the course of this stay at Amiens that monsieur roland applied for letters patent of nobility wishing to resume the title of his ancestry now that his wealth was sufficient to support such rank his wife was not unwilling to bear the gracious title of lady roland in spite of her previous contempt of titled nobility and meditations upon the inequality of mankind it was a temptation neither of them would have rejected had their application been successful in 1785 monsieur roland removed to the city of lyon The family occupied a winter residence in town, but passed the summers upon a fine paternal estate a few miles from Lyon. La Platière was a rural retreat, lying in the valley of the Somme, at the foot of the mountains of Beaujolais. It was a wild, romantic region, intersected with deep gorges and watered by impetuous torrents, that leapt and foamed down the mountainsides. Then, rushing noisily through the fertile valley, swelled the wide-rolling Somme to overflowing. Fruitful vineyards grew purple in the warm sheltered valley and the smooth green meadows were dotted with flocks of white sheep guarded by shepherds. In the midst of these meadows and vineyards stretched the La Platière farm, with its sleek cattle, its dove fish-ponds, gardens, and groups of willows with their long sweeping boughs and tall prim poplars shading the solid square stone house and its numberless outhouses. The mansion, spacious and airy, had nothing to recommend it in the way of ornamental architecture. A plain front, the roof projecting and nearly flat, regular windows, and a plain portico at the entrance, told more of unpretending comfort than taste or display. Madame Roland, accustomed only to a life among brick and mortar, regarded La Platiere with enthusiastic admiration. She could scarcely find words to express her joy on finding herself possessed of such a secluded, charming retreat as she had often pictured in her dreams. But every cup has its drop of gall. Monsieur Roland's mother and brother still occupied the estate, one, proud, tyrannical, and possessing the enviable characteristics of a shrew, the other, gruff, coarse, and surly, kept discord perpetually awake. The mother's turbulent spirit was soon hushed in the unregretted sleep of death, an event that decided the Roland family to occupy their estate throughout the year. Five years of undisturbed happiness succeeded. Madame Roland's time was divided between the systematic regulation of domestic duties the education of their only and idolized child, Eudora, and the reception of much company, attracted by the scientific celebrity of M. Roland, Beside all these time-consuming demands, she secured two hours during the day to pass in her husband's study, assisting him, in his literary pursuits, with her ready and popular pen, that gained him many an eulogium. Happy in lending her talents to secure his renown rather than her own, and capable of an entire devotion to his comfort and happiness, More from a sense of duty and veneration than the promptings of love, she passed those five years in an uninterrupted tranquillity that seemed a rest to her tired spirit, a preparation, a gathering of strength for the tempestuous life that followed. End of section thirty nine. Recording by Matthew Reese, Davenport, Iowa.